an age where aging is reversible, where you can not only wipe 20 years off how old you look, but reset failing organs and even eyesight. My guest on this episode of Brilliant Brains says that world could well be reality sooner than we think. This is a big change. For sure, there are going to be societal changes, economic changes. I think it, it, we should start thinking about this now because it, it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when these are coming. Dr. David Sinclair is a professor of genetics at Harvard, whose research and book, Lifespan, have seen him heralded around the world as an anti-aging saviour. That's David Sinclair on this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels. Brilliant Brains is supported by Karmacist, taking well-being to the next level. Formulated by scientists at Harvard and Stanford, Karmacist supplements uniquely harness nutrigenomics research, which looks at how the nutrients we eat affect our genes. They've come up with some excellent formulations for mood, immunity, energy, and relaxation all powered by natural botanicals like saffron, gotu cola, California poppy, and reishi. To get your hands on these, uh, some might say, breakthrough supplements, head to karmacist.com. That's K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T.com, where you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Back to Dr. David Sinclair. Uh, David, thanks for doing this. You must incessantly get asked by people the whole time, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do to make myself live longer? So tell me something you've done this week, which has probably shortened your life expectancy. Gee, that's hard. Uh, I try to avoid things that shorten my life expectancy, but I've done a lot of sitting. I'm writing manuscripts, uh, a lot of Zoom meetings like a lot of others. And so that is as bad as smoking. Uh, So I try to get out at least once a day, go for a long walk, uh, go to the gym which I will do after we're done talking today. But I think, yeah, yeah, sedentary lifestyle is, is a killer. So that's, that's, that's your vice at the moment, is, is spending too much time on your posterior. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an occupational hazard. In your book, one of the things that really stands out at me is you have a very different mindset uh, around aging, and you say we should actually treat it as a disease rather than just some sort of inevitability that we're all sort of destined to head towards. Could you, could you explain that a bit more? Right. Well, the definition of disease is debilitation, loss of activity, loss of health. And we're very good at classifying diseases. We have thousands of them in, in books. The big one that causes disability, frailty, lowers health, uh, is actually aging. The reason we don't call it a disease is because it's very common. If you live long enough, everyone will experience it. But that doesn't mean that it's any different than a disease. It's just a very common one. Uh, Unfortunately, because it's common, we've become complacent and assumed that it is just a quote-unquote natural part of life. But if you go back 100 years where getting, you know, dying from an infected splinter or from pneumonia, cancer, these things were much more common and untreatable. And so aging one day will also be considered a treatable condition, perhaps a treatable disease that you go to your doctor, you have your age measured, which we can do that very accurately now. uh, And you go on a medicine or a group of medicines that would treat your aging um, and actually give you much bigger bang for the buck than a medicine that only treats or prevents one disease. If you treat aging, then you're actually going to delay or perhaps prevent all major diseases that we succumb to, from heart disease to dementia cancer even. So if, if we do treat aging as a disease, like any other disease, what 
I guess, on that sort of biological sense, is it that happens in the body which triggers aging? You know, in the same way that we know, I guess, rogue cells cause cancer. What is it biologically that causes aging? We have a good idea. There are nine major processes that occur as uh, as we get older, and we've been treating those various nine causes in animal studies and in some cases in human clinical trials and having some pretty good effects. We can, in the lab, extend the lifespan of rodents, mice, rats, um, up to 40%, which in human years would, would of course, take us in you know, beyond 120. That part turns out not to be that difficult. What's particularly exciting is that out of those nine causes, there's a, a new push uh, a new area of research just in the last few years that says that perhaps one of these causes uh, is actually driving most of these others. Uh, And that's the loss of information in the body. And, uh, you know, I'll expand on what that actually means. But what's exciting about being in the aging field is that we've been able to slow down aging by addressing these nine, what we call hallmarks of aging. But perhaps if we can really get to this, what we call the upstream cause, the major driver, this loss of information, then it might be a game changer. We might be able to dramatically not just slow down aging, but even reverse aging itself and turn the age of the body backwards. So of these processes, uh, you say the kind of the kind of perhaps the key driver is this kind of loss of information. And you, you say that one of the ways you demonstrated that was to was to break the DNA of a mouse. And then the, and the mouse then started to kind of um it's fair to say look older than it than its years. Yeah, that's right. So the, the information that I'm talking about in the cell is not the genetic information. Um it turns out the genetic information is largely intact even when we're old. And we know this for a number of reasons. We can reset adult cells to be stem cells in in the dish, put them back into the body, and we can clone animals from adult cells. So the genetic information is largely intact. It's not perfect, but it's still there. Uh, The epigenetic information are the structures that control which genes are turned on and off. And what we see over time is that cells turn on the wrong genes and, uh, and turn off the wrong genes. And so eventually they lose their ability to function and they lose their identity. So your brain starts to forget that it's a brain and your eye forgets to act like an eye. These DNA cuts that you're referring to, this disrupts those structures that control which genes are on and off. And we get an acceleration of aging. And uh, so when we do this to a mouse, that, that mouse doesn't just look old and have diseases of aging, we can actually measure its age using uh, what's called the, the DNA methylation clock uh, and accurately show that, and, and unbiased, in an unbiased way, that these mice are actually 50% older than the untreated siblings uh, in the litter. I mean, did he, did he look quite doddery? Yeah, well, they're gray and they, they, they lose their memory and they've got problems with all their organs. Um, and it's one thing to create a mouse that looks old. It's quite another to actually go in and measure its age accurately. And that's what we did. And we were very pleased to see that those mice didn't just look old. They, they literally were older, older than the, the untreated mice. So if, if I've got this right, the kind of what you think of the kind of key, the kind of meta key almost to aging, isn't the kind of the, the sort of DNA in our cells degrading. It's the information which controls whether those genes are being switched on and off. Is that, is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. So the, the genes are still there, but they're not turned on in the, the beautiful, youthful way that, that were established uh, when we were 
kids. But the good news is that what we have discovered is that there is a way to reset the system. So in the same way that um, a DVD, listeners hopefully will remember what a DVD is, the the young folks may not, but these are discs with uh, digital information printed on them, engraved in them. I think of aging as though it's a scratched DVD, a scratched CD of music. And so we can polish that, polish the scratches away and get the information back again. And we've been able to do something at least analogous in cells is to get rid of those scratches and make the cells read their genes the way they did when they were younger. And when we do that, the clock goes backwards and those cells and tissues such as the eye regain their youthful function. And in fact, we've been able to make old mice see again. So to get rid of the scratch from this DVD, to kind of restore the way the the information is, is firing, what are the principles that can bring that about? There are genes that have been discovered that can turn an adult cell from a human into pluripotent stem cell that can be made into any cell type or even a whole new organ. We took that knowledge and used it to reverse the aging process. Now, what you don't want to do is to reverse the age in the body all the way back to a stem cell, because then we'd become a a giant tumor. Massive stem cells is not good. So we needed to figure out how to partially reset the system without causing cancer. Uh, And that's what we believe we've achieved now. Instead of using four of these reprogramming genes called Yamanaka factors, we used three of them. And those three seem to be the right combination. And when we deliver those three genes and turn them on in an adult, remember, normally these genes would be on in a very young person or an embryo, but we turn them on in in an adult and suddenly the adult is able to become young again. Um, and so that hasn't ever been done before. And uh, we think that it's the beginning of a whole new way of addressing aging in that you can reset the age of parts of the body or eventually the whole body. And we're now testing how many times can you reset the system? How many times can you reset the eye, for instance? We've done it once, but maybe you can reset it twice, five times, maybe even 10 times. We'll, we'll see. These genes, are they, uh, uh, are you kind of... I don't know how you describe it. Are you sort of inserting these genes back into adult humans? Are you kind of getting other cells, as you're saying, kind of repurposing them as, as genes? Kind of what, what are you physically doing to do this? Yeah, well, the three genes um, have their acronym is O, S, and K. These are genes that will make proteins that control other genes. So we're, we're basically resetting the program to turn on the right youthful genes. The way we deliver those genes, I mean, I I should say that these genes exist in our body already, but they just get turned off when we're young. So what we need to do is to turn them back on again. And the way we do that now in the mouse is we use gene therapy. We use viruses that are domesticated, used in gene therapy in humans already. And we package those three genes, O, S, and K, into the virus and then inject the virus into the eyeball of a mouse. And then we can turn on those genes with an antibiotic for three weeks. And when we do that, we get vision back again. So at the moment, it's kind of quite localized where you'll, you'll pick somewhere like the eye, in, inject the, the sort of package directly into that. And then the eye itself will sort of, those genes will click on and the eye will rejuvenate. Is that what you're kind of doing? You're picking localized areas on the body to, to apply this to? Yeah, well, that was our, <clears throat> that was our first approach. And we did that for safety reasons. And also because gene therapy is best developed for the eye. And there we've treated mice that have glaucoma, pressure in the eye, and also a damaged optic nerve. And and the treatment works for those as well. 
Uh, we have treated entire mice. We've injected a virus into the vein of a mouse so that it's infected most organs and turned it on just to see what would happen. And the mice are perfectly healthy. Uh, in fact, they seem to have fewer cancers than a regular mouse. So we, we are excited that, at least in theory, we can start treating other organs as well, not just the eye. And this, I mean, we, we think about aging in a kind of very, I guess, almost aesthetic sense or looking older and feeling older. But this is, I mean, from what you're describing, this can be, this can be radical treatment one day for heart disease or for cancer or for, for any number of individual serious elements where you're, by bringing back the kind of youth to that, you're, you're regenerating the heart or something like that. Yeah, I, I have no reason to believe it won't be possible. What we need to figure out is, are O, S, and K universal reset factors, genes, or does the heart need a different set? Now, I'm, I'm optimistic that it will work in all organ, organs, but we have to test that. And what, what level of human testing have you done on this approach? Uh, we can reset the age of human cells. We've done that for human nerve cells and skin cells, but <clears throat> human clinical trials are about a couple of years away. And we're working towards that right now. We'll probably treat uh, a couple of eye diseases, for instance, glaucoma, try to reverse the loss of eyesight, uh, and the same for macular degeneration. Again, it's loss of vision. Uh, the reason I'm excited about doing that is right now, loss of vision is irreversible. Uh, same for a spinal cord injury, right? You're not going to walk again. But this treatment seems to be able to do things that medicines currently cannot uh, and uh, and if it does work, it, it truly would be a game changer for tens of millions of people around the world. So so far, you've you've, you've done it on human cells, what in a sort of petri dish type format? Exactly, exactly. You know, putting putting gene therapy into humans isn't something that anyone does uh, in a hurry. So we have been doing research on safety in animals for the last year, uh, and still have a couple of more years before we would uh, start to treat humans. You know, it's, it's a very potent therapy, but because of its potency, we have to be extra careful that we're not going to do any harm. So in, in the kind of the dream scenario of this methodology, you find ways to reverse the clock on, on degenerative human conditions, whether that's spinal damage or eyesight, and then what maybe sort of build up to the kind of bigger picture of aging as a whole across the body? Yeah, exactly. We're really held back currently by the ability to deliver the therapy evenly across the body. Uh, even in, in our lab in mice, it's not possible to evenly treat all organs with one injection. But there's going to be a lot of money put into this field, and we will figure this out. So your, your, I guess your future vision then is, uh, what does medicine look like? The future for humanity, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the future for medical treatments. I mean, and we can talk about the knock-on effects of that as well. But what what does going to the doctor look like in 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 this future? Well, the, the analogy that I I like to make is the Wright brothers is similar. That we we know we can glide down the sand dunes of Kitty Hawk, and we're strapping on engines and and propellers and trying to imagine where this all go, will all go. So it's the point is it's very early days, but I'm sure the Wright brothers could see that there would be planes carrying people and mail across the planet one day. Uh, so with that, my, my hope for the future is that, first of all, aging will be taken more seriously as a medical condition that is treatable. Well, perhaps not indefinitely preventable, but 
you can prevent it for maybe 10, 20 years. So what would it look like? You go into your doctor, you've just had your 55th birthday, your doctor takes a blood test, you find out that biologically you're actually 65, that can be done actually today, that's not future. Um, and, uh, and your doctor says, well, you know, you're at 65, you're at high risk for X, Y, and Z. Why don't we take your age back a decade or two so that you don't have to worry about uh, these age-related diseases for a while? And so you, you either get an injection or eventually it, it could be a couple of pills that you take for three weeks and your body goes back to an earlier time when you uh, were much fitter and you find that your eyesight is better, you can, the aches and pains go away, your memory improves. And then the doctor says, well, come back in another five, 10 years and, and we'll see if you need another course of these medicines. Would, would you physically revert to how you used to look 10, 15 years ago? Uh, you probably would. I, I know that that's, that's crazy to think about, but if we can restore eyesight, and that's a, that's a very complex tissue, the retina, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be able to make the skin function as though it is young again. Now, not everything is going to be 100% reversible. I'm not you know, under the, the impression that it's, it's going to be, you, know, you go from an 80-year-old and go back to looking like a 20-year-old. There are some genetic changes that probably are irreversible. But I do think that dramatically improving looks and organ function is now feasible using this technology and technologies that will come from these discoveries. I mean, the, the mind boggles at the, at the <laughs> what could happen to suddenly find that your, you know, your partner looks 15 years younger or to walk down the street and you, walk, you don't notice a friend because it's like you bump into a friend and they look like how they looked when you were with them at college. I mean, it's, it's sort of it, it, it's almost impossible to get your, get your head around that sort of thing. Uh, yes, this is a big change. For sure, there are going to be societal changes, economic changes. I think it, it, we should start thinking about this now because it, it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when these are coming. And uh, I think we need to prepare because some of the changes in society are going to be huge. What, what do you do with a population that's healthy and active for another decade? What do you do with people? You know, we went through this change in the 20th century with great gains in longevity. We could go through something like that again. I mean, you, you, the, the number of living to 113 crops up in your book, which very quickly obviously brings a, about serious consequences for the ability to sustain that population, you know, given that we're already sort of buggering up the planet as it is with climate change and, and resources. You would, I mean, you, you, you write about this, but that, that in itself needs kind of whole scale changes to, to how we're going to live, how we're going to work, how we consume as well. That's correct. Now, the, the good news is that overpopulation is, is not likely to happen. The rate of fertility uh, is going down across the planet as countries become more educated, wealthier, women have a choice. Even if you give people another 10, 20 years of life, the good news is, if you do the math, it's not going to have a major impact on the number of people on the planet. What it will do, though, is it will reduce the amount of disease and disability late in life that currently is, at least in the US, using up um, about 15% of GDP. And so what the world could look like is that uh, we just have a lot more wealth as a, as a planet that can be used to spend on, instead of people taking care of 
people in nursing homes, uh, that same money could be put towards solving problems. A quick word, well, one sentence from our sponsor, Karmacist. Karmacist supplements don't contain any artificial fillers, preservatives, colours, oxide forms of minerals or titanium dioxide. Ugh. And they are 100% vegan friendly. Karmacist.com is where you'll find your supplements and no nasty oxides. David, I'm interested as to the, your sort of personal motivations that got you, I guess, into the or ended up in the anti-aging space. And you, you write in your book, Lifespan, about your grandma, who you call Vera, who seems like a, a sort of really interesting character. And in, in the Second World War, she sheltered people who were facing the Holocaust, potentially. And then your, your family ended up fleeing Hungary. I, I don't know if it's too much of a kind of psycho-babble jump, but was that kind of early exposure to the to the fragility of life to mortality something which may have kind of nestled inside you i think that's a that's a brilliant insight uh, i haven't even put that into words before uh i think you're right i grew up as a kid hearing stories about death survival the the fragility of life how luck plays a major role in whether you make it or not escaping over borders with bullets flying over your head and then also Vera, my grandmother, would drum it into me that the life that I was leading was not a typical life. I was a pretty spoiled kid. Uh, I think any kid growing up in the late 20th century was relatively spoiled compared to the early and mid 20th century. It was pretty rough in Europe. And I, I do think that that helped shape my view of life, how quick it is, how risky life is, and, and ultimately how every one of us will succumb to something. You know, a lot of people, I would say 99% of people ignore their mortality until it's too late. But for me as a kid growing up, it was in my face all the time. And that probably had a big impact. And was it a sort of accidental drift towards the, the sort of field of aging or, or perhaps more intentional? Well, you know, I'd love to say, oh, at age four, I, I had planned my entire career. Uh, it's not really true, but I do remember at age four being shocked that everybody I know and my pet cat would die and then realizing, okay, I'm going to die too. But it was a bigger shock. Actually, the biggest shock was that my cat was going to die at the time. But at that point, I didn't say, oh, okay, I'm going to dedicate my life to that. No four-year-old does. But I did grow up wanting to be a doctor of some sort and help people. I've always been interested in, in biology rather than, say, mechanical engineering. The reason being is I, I just find biological systems, organisms, humans to be fascinating. They are the most complicated things in the universe that we know of. The human brain is probably the most complex machine that exists. So I've just, I, I used to pull apart cocoons and nests of animals. I grew up on the edge of the bush in Australia. And so I think that combination of wanting to help humanity, wanting to help people live healthier, longer lives, especially, you know, when I was young, my family. Now it's more of a global passion. It, it all gelled in college. And I remember saying to my friends who spent most of their time playing cards in a smoky cafe, do you realize that we are probably the last generation of humans to live a normal lifespan? And in the future, our kids or grandkids will have vastly healthier, longer lives because they will figure out why we age and what we can do about it. The, I mean, the advances that you're talking about are extraordinary if they you know if they certainly come to fruition from what we know now 
in terms of the mechanics of aging and what might slow that down or possibly reverse it? How have you built that into your lifestyle? What am I doing? I'm trying not to spend too much time sitting. I'm doing a lot of exercise. I try to eat well. I try to eat only one or two meals a day. And I take just a few supplements that have come out largely from my lab zone research. Uh, there's that one I mentioned called NMN. Uh, there's metformin, which is that diabetes drug. Uh, and then I also take and have taken for oh, about 13 years this molecule called resveratrol, which is known for its uh, existence in red wine. And, and is it fair to say that these are supplements which you're taking on a bit of a flyer? They're not clinically proven for what they're doing at this stage? Yeah, that's well, they, they've been in humans. <clears throat> Excuse me. We know a lot about metformin, um, and it seems to be protective against disease of aging. Resveratrol has been tested in many clinical trials and seems to lower inflammation and blood sugar levels. Uh, we know less about NMN because it was discovered more recently, but those trials um, are ongoing. So with that, you know, I, I still have to say I, I don't know if long-term this is going to help. Uh, my father has been on the same regimen as me, and we've been doing, quote-unquote, doing this for over a decade. So he's now 81. He's super healthy mentally, physically, even emotionally during COVID. So as far as I can tell, we're not doing ourselves any harm. But you're right. This is a, this is a bet that the science is right. The alternative is what some of my colleagues say, which is, I'm not going to do anything until it's proven to work. Well, the problem there is you'll be dead by the time a lot of this is proven out. So that's, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So there is this uh, risk-reward calculation that needs to be done. And if, if you can't take any risk, uh, then you, know, you, you won't get the reward. Um, but you have to know that there are some risks, especially with molecules that haven't been tested in uh, for decades in millions of people to know how safe they are. Hmm. And in terms of the other lifestyle stuff, it sort of strikes me that it sort of gets to how we're meant to live or how we always lived, where we would naturally skip meals. We would only have meat infrequently. Um, you know, hunting was never quite as successful as people thought it was. You also talk about being exposed to the cold or bouts of heat as well, you know, sort of this kind of pampered, soft life that we live now, sort of gets to the idea that we're, we're just sort of not living entirely how our bodies have been designed. Well, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, we, we were not supposed to eat this much, this many calories or this much uh, fat in our diet. It was more plant-based and the plants that we ate were small, stressed out, full of molecules like resveratrol. And so the, the lifestyle that's closest to that would either be on the island of Okinawa or areas of Italy, Mediterranean diets, been proven to be healthy. Um, so these are the diets that I try to focus on, um, though my wife cooked, cooked uh, German schnitzel uh, last night, which was unavoidable. But in general, I, I like to eat mostly plant-based foods if I can. Uh, eat less than I want, and uh, try not to feel full if possible. 
But that's the main thing. Eat, eat smaller amounts, plant-based, and if you can find foods that have been grown under stressful conditions, then they're likely to have beneficial molecules in them than ones that you get from mass production. David, I'm interested to know how much process that you've been through and I guess the status you've achieved, you know, names on, you know, the kind of time 100 list, all that sort of thing may have weighed down on you and whether you feel sort of personally a sense of responsibility for, you know, if some of this stuff comes off, it could have incredible ramifications across society. Are you someone who wakes up at night with some of these responsibilities weighing down on you? Yes, um, it's true. Mostly what I'm worried about at night is that I won't achieve what I'm hoping to achieve in my lifetime. What's been quite rewarding, though, is that the technology is, has moved much fast, faster than I thought it would. So I'm, I'm optimistic that within our lifetime, my lifetime, we'll see some, some Im- impact. But you know, I'm I'm, <clears throat> I'm not uh, any different than than other other people on the planet. You know, I'm, I'm I stay awake worrying about my family, my kids, my parents, uh, my friends. Um, but I do I do wake up with um, a mission to to do the best I can every day and make progress. And I I work with dozens of scientists every day who are just amazing people. Um, and keeping all of that going, making sure that they're on track, making sure that they're funded. Uh, that That's a, a difficult job. You know, so being a scientist is not easy. It's not as though we can ever rest on our laurels or have unlimited money. We don't have to worry about that. And uh, so that's, it, it. you know, I wouldn't complain about my life, uh, but I would say that it certainly hasn't been particularly easy. Uh, I, I do work uh, far more than than I should, although I'm, I'm now taking a lot more time off with my family during COVID. Would your kids say that, you know, daddy's developed a saviour complex with people around the world looking to him for salvation? Probably. <clears throat> um, that's why I'm spending more time with them now. I don't know if, uh, if you'd call it a complex, but I did feel a responsibility even when when COVID took off, to understand it, to educate, uh, to distribute material, I do tend to jump into the middle of things and try and solve problems, um, big problems, global problems. And uh, yeah, my kids see that um, and uh, and respond accordingly. Your work around aging and your sort of understanding of genetics and also this kind of bigger picture of what might be coming down the path, has it, I don't, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, are you a kind of fairly clinical scientist or has it made you spiritual in any way um well so i'm spiritual in the sense that the universe has so many unknowns and is so weird that it it's hard to imagine that there isn't something else going on i mean the uh and quantum entanglement is is a very bizarre phenomenon that uh you know molecules particles are actually uh connected through uh, at the same time through space so that these weird things make me think uh there might be something else going on but um you know day to day i'm not a, a very religious person other than trying to do my best and treat people kindly that's that's my religion you might want to refer to it as humanist 
Um, but yeah, I, I believe in humanity. I want humanity to be the best it can be and to make things equal uh, across the planet and take care of our home, um, the earth. So that, that's what I do. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also human. So I've, you know, I cross my fingers. I'm, I'm quite, uh, uh, worried about bad luck. You know, these, these are silly things, but, uh, I, I think we're all, we all succumb to a little bit of hope and, uh, that we might actually be able to influence the future, uh, by doing certain things. But, you know, realistically, it's pretty silly to even bother. David, I'd like to end on a, just a couple of quick fire questions. Brilliant brains. Who would your brilliant brain be? Who would you Who would you put on a kind of pedestal as someone who you 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 have most looked up to? Yeah, that would be Benjamin Franklin. And the reason that I think he is amazing is that in his time, he was able to have a huge influence on on business, on writing politics right part of the birth of an entire nation he was a scientist um i don't think he was a very good person right he was a self-promoter in the way that thomas edison was um but but i like the way he was able to step into various areas of endeavor and have an impact and so that that's what i'd like to do i'm not saying that i could be anywhere near as impactful as these people i mentioned um, you know but i think that leaving the world a better place than you found it is a a very good goal. And it does require a lot of not just mental ability, but, but, but physical um, sacrifice to be able to get these things done. Um, Otherwise, if if it was easy, everybody would do it. And if we were to give you a a suitable amount of power and make you global dictator, David Sinclair, what would your acts be to make people live longer and be happier and not bugger up the planet in the uh, process? Well, I would continue to invest in the right areas of research. If you motivate people to discover things and then to innovate, which we see a lot in Boston, for example, that's one of the reasons that I, I live here versus Sydney. You know, Sydney's, Sydney winters are a lot better than Boston winters. What I would do is to harness human ingenuity and curiosity uh, the number of scientists in the world is still very low and we all struggle for funding. But what I see is possible when you put teams of people together who have different areas of expertise, computer programmers, biologists, clinicians, amazing things are, are possible. And that's what I would do. I would invest in humans and, and what they can achieve. And when there's great possibility, um, like reprogramming of the body, I would pour a lot of money into that uh, rather than put it, put the money into frivolous things that really don't change the world in the long run. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I would do. I think that uh, a lot of money is, is wasted on things that, that don't change the world. Um, the other thing that's important to realize is it's a virtuous cycle. If we can improve people's health, uh, we can ha- have even more human capital that can be put back into solving not just the problem of aging and healthcare, but how to take care of the planet, how to use fewer resources, how to extract energy from the earth and from the sun better. We're heading slowly towards that future, but uh, it's not going as fast as it could if all countries were really focused on it. 
David Sinclair, thanks so much for your time. And um, on behalf of mankind, good luck. <laughs> oh, thanks, Tim. It's been great to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Dr. David Sinclair. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including Robin Sharma, the monk who sold his Ferrari author, explain why getting up at 5am can apparently revolutionise your life, go to karmacist.com slash podcast. That's the show's sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. Brilliant Brains.